everyone. This is Victoria Stapleton, and I am really excited to welcome you to the Little Brown School and Library podcast. Our guest this month is Samira Ahmed. Now, you know her from some really fantastic YA books, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, Love, Hate, and Other Filters, published, as we say, like Johnny Carson in the old days, by another house. She came to Little Brown Books for Young Readers with internment, a riveting, essential YA book that is set in the near future. It is a charged book. It is political. However, beyond all that, it is beautifully, pungently written. I don't want to say lyrical because that's an overused word, but I cannot speak highly enough of the writing of internment. I'm going to tell you, spoiler alert, Samira will be back in 2022 on our list with another YA book called Hollow Fires, and uh, pleased to enjoy the, hitting the pre-order button right now. But she's with us today to discuss another really fantastic book that she's done. This is called Amira and Hamza, The War to Save the World. Actually, The War to Save the Worlds, plural, which is part of the enjoyment of this book. Welcome to the podcast, Samira. Hi, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. And what a fantastic introduction. I would just like you to come everywhere with me to introduce me. I mean, just like to the grocery store, at all my events. More than happy. Uh, if you have a garage, I'm willing to move into the garage. Uh, just not next Perfect. to the metal recycling. I tend to move around a lot when I sleep and it may be noisy. In introducing you, I am rather spoiled for choice. Because I've just mentioned the YA books and the middle grade books. You have done a comics miniseries uh, with Marvel for Ms. Marvel. And you have contributed to many, 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 many uh, anthologies. So you're excellent. And I don't want to say prolific, but let's go with prolific, but still always excellent. It is a joy and a pleasure to read your work. And so I'm excited that you're coming to the middle grade space, which is one of my most favorite spaces for reading and the most interesting space, thinking about emerging readers. We think of those as younger folks learning grammar and spelling and sounds, but emerging meaningful readers in middle grade space. And what you've done here with Amira and Hamza is it's toothsome. It's a toothsome delight. <laughs> I, I would like that as a blurb. It's a toothsome delight. It's a wonderful blurb. So thank you very much. And I am also very, very excited to enter the middle grade space because it's essentially like debuting again. And it's with this age group that I find so fascinating and just enjoyable, and I have the great privilege of being an auntie to many young folks in that age group, and there's just something utterly delightful about them. They are, I like the word emerging because that speaks so much to not just like them emerging as sort of, you know, very thoughtful readers, but just emerging sort of out of this cocoon of like very young childhood into this space where their eyes are more open to the world around them. I love how um, some of the, like the young people in my life who are, you know, fifth and sixth graders have this super keen observant eye. Mm. I love that so much, but I also have this kind of like developing wit. There's like a little bit of sarcasm in there, but they, 
they still had this kind of whimsical, imaginative quality about their life. And I, I just think that that age group is so cool. There's so many ways in which all of their experiences are intersecting to help them become more of the young people that are going to be. I, I love how you've described this. Uh, middle grade is one of the most elastic of age ranges. We typically think of this in publishing as ages 8 to 12. And that has some sort of overlap with, in some regions of the country, it's called middle school or, as I did, junior high. I was also a junior high. Junior person. high is the best. But it's interesting to think about this narrative space or the storytelling space because you're looking at if you were a weird kid like me and permanently marked by Watergate and Richard Nixon, you were reading all the president's men at eight and nine and understanding it, the words on the page, but maybe not understanding fully the import of what was going on. And then you can have older readers, say uh, 11, 12, 13, who are uh, understanding the words. They're also not emotionally prepared, or maybe they're emotionally prepared, but not understanding the words on the page. There's just such a variety of intelligences at, at play in this narrative space, whether that is um, what we think of as emotional intelligence or social intelligence or verbal intelligence uh, in this space. You've worked a lot as a teacher. Guess I just want to ask, when you decided to do middle grade, I mean, was that a challenge to you thinking about this narrative space or this reading space? So one of the things that's really important to me um, as I'm writing, whether it's for young adult or middle grade, is to really honor the reader in whichever ways they're coming to the book. And so I try to keep that sort of top of mind because I feel like for me to be able to write for young people and as a former teacher, it is a great privilege to be able to do so and to enter you know, the life uh, of a child through a, through a book and through a story and through their imagination. And I think that the challenge for me was at middle grade, I mean, we're talking those rough ages, like eight to 12, maybe it's seven to 13. Maybe it's a parent reading out loud to their child, um, which I hope some people are doing. And, you know, a second or third grader can be very different than a sixth grader. And so what I want to do is make sure I'm telling a story honestly and meeting the reader where they are and not talking down to the reader because I think in both middle grade and young adult, I think we don't give kids enough credit for just truly how smart they are, how they make connections. I really want to give them a story that, you know, you use the word toothsome. I, I want to give them something that they can really like just grab onto and love, but also investigate, examine, ask questions about. I mean, that age group is just a wonder of curiosity. And I just love when kids ask questions. Just from my experience with all my nieces and nephews, and even from kids that I've taught, asking questions and just letting your curiosity thrive is something that I hope that as adults, um, we can really just reinforce for young people. I mean, I think honestly, in adulthood, we lose a little bit of that curiosity, which I think is um, which I think is unfortunate. But for young people, I just want to give them kind of a, a fertile story, a fertile space to just let that imagination, you know, burst out onto the, uh, you know from the page. Let them ask those questions, and I just I try to write a story that will allow them to do that. Well, let's get into this a little bit because. In addition to being your first, you know, real middle grade novel, 
this is a departure for you in another sense as well. You're mainly known for contemporary YA fiction, you know, moving over into, I don't know what we would exactly call internment. I don't know that we would say necessarily contemporary. It's really hard because it is really hard. And one of the things about internment that was interesting was when I was, I go to a lot of schools and visit, I visited many, many grades. And one thing multiple librarians asked me was, should I put internment in the contemporary section or the science fiction section? We don't know. And honestly, I actually sort of love that because I love straddling genres because I think that genre can sometimes be confining. Mm -hmm. And I love having, uh, I love interstitial spaces. So, I mean, maybe it doesn't make it that easy for cataloging, but it's really great as a writer. And with Amira and Hamza, you've given us something. These kids, Amira and Hamza, they are very well-grounded, regular kids. They've got curiosities. I enjoy some of the snarkiness that that's in there and the sibling <laughs> dynamic, but um, these are very regular kids that are then in fantastical circumstances. So I think a librarian or a teacher would have a little bit easier time finding the right shelf for this book, but it's only very, I don't even think it's that much more over into sci-fi or speculative fiction than internment. It's a di very different book, but I don't know that it's less of a contemporary book. Does that make sense? I, I Yes, it does. I mean, to me, it, I mean, when I talk about genre, in my mind, I feel like everything I write is contemporary, even though Amir and Hamza is clearly a fantasy. It has the fantastical elements. They travel to a different realm. There are fantastical creatures they've come across. They, um, you know, they have creatures of fire, you know, fire spirits like Jin. They uh, have a there's a flying horse with three eyes. There, um, you know, there's shapeshifters. There's jinn who occupy trees. There's devs and ghouls. There are like so many fantastical creatures they come across. But all of my stories, and even Amira Hamsa, my most fantastical story, is very much grounded in our contemporary world, because that very description, Amira and Hamza are just regular kids. You know, they're regular siblings. They're hanging out in the neighborhood. One is like a little nerdier than the other. One is like, I'd say, I guess maybe a little more geeky. He's into his fandoms. They've just got their own things going on. But at the same time, they're presented with a circumstance, a situation in life that they could never have imagined being confronted with. And that to me is, speaks so much to actually childhood because we, you know, our young people are so often having to deal with situations um, some fantastical, I hope, in a positive way, but others that are very, that can be terrifying and, and scary and hard to manage. They're confronted with situations that essentially adults have created and that they are now having to deal with. Really, Amir and Hamza, that's why I guess, I, even though it's a fantasy, it's grounded in just that, that reality which our young people face every day. I have often said, sorry guys, but episode 11 billion of this soapbox speech a good middle grade is marked by the moral development of the characters realizing that the world is made of choices and the world that they are presented with is made by the choices of adults and how do they navigate that. And mm -hmm. I think here it's a little bit different because in some ways <laughs> the worlds are not necessarily made of adult choices. How about you introduce us to these to these fantastical creatures and this realm Amira and Hamza find themselves in? 
Uh, sure. So Amira and Hamza um, uh, find themselves whisked away um, to this magical realm of Kaf. Kaf is this land um, which is the home, the the empire of sort of spirits of fire. So that means creatures like, or you know, creatures like jinn who are made of smokeless fire, who are shapeshifters, and other fire spirits such as buddies. Buddies are uh, basically. Um, Islamic fairies, like, or Middle Eastern or even Indian, um, you know, culturally, it's, uh, buddy is a word essentially for fairy. It's winged creatures. Um, And then there's kind of more monstrous type creatures, ghouls, which is where we get the English word ghoul from, devs. So these, these creatures are in the midst of a terrible civil war. And Amir and Hamza are told that they are the ones who are going to have to stop the civil war. And if they don't, the moon, which is the stopper between these two worlds, is going to shatter and all these monsters are going to be unleashed upon Earth. And, you know, it's slightly more unusual than an average day for a middle grader, but in some ways, maybe not. Um, You know, a lot of times middle grade kids are dealing with a lot of tough issues and they have to make sometimes choices that are difficult. And that's what Amir and Hamza find themselves faced with. And one thing I love about this age is when you are confronted with something that is new to you, whether it's um, something dangerous or whether it's something just shocking or, you know, just a circumstance that you could never have expected or really prepared for, young people use the tools that they have to make sense of the world. I love that so much. And that's why um, in this book, Amir and Hamza have all these touch points, even though they're in this fantastical world where there's all these amazing creatures, where there's fruits made of jewels, you know, where um, they have to have learn how to sword fight and use like bows and arrows and um, are flying over a magnetic sea and land on this island of confusion that tries to trap them there. They, all these touch points, the ways they try to figure out how to manage this completely new world are related to their actual world, the things that they've learned and how they can apply things, whether it's Amira using karate, which she's not always the greatest at, whether she's learning some of those lessons from her sensei, whether it's Hamza thinking like, hmm, what would this superhero do? I, I'm, I'm ready to be a hero and I, this is how I'm going to step up or whether it's them figuring out, well, this is how I can use my, my gum as glue to make a raft. I mean, so those touch points in our world are really important um, for me to present because that's how kids navigate new spaces and new situations. Okay. So I'm going to give an example of one of these that I marked because, okay, the day I read it, I was super hungry and then, okay, I can't eat this again. I'm super sorry, but the giant mint green ghoul plods into the clearing. His gin skin color reminds me of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Now all I can think about is ghoul skin-toned ice cream. Gross. (laughs) That is just one of the examples of just like, there's, you know, these are regular, regular kids and how you depict over and over again in these very tiny moments of things, just like that, of how grounded they, this experience is in those touch points of just, it's not special weird ice cream. It's mint chocolate chip, which is not that... Of course. I mean, but everyone knows the color of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Like if you go to your ice cream shop, you know that green, it's an immediate image. And so, of course, the kids are going to relate it to something they know because that's how we relate to 
the unknown. And I think this lets me get into another aspect of this. You know, Amira and Hamza and their family are clearly South Asian and they are clearly firmly culturally within an Islamic and South Asian context. Uh, this is their narrative tradition. But this moment, particularly the, the ice cream pillar, readers who are not part of that narrative tradition and that story well, they can also relate to that moment. Right. I mean, you know, Amir and Hamza are their South Asian Muslim American kids. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, you know, they're just like a lot of the other kids that they're going to school with, which is they have a lot of different intersections, you know, at, at home, their parents are speaking, you know, in two different languages. They're speaking in American English and then Urdu, just that's how it was for me as a kid. But you're still just an American kid and you're having mint chocolate chip ice cream and you're contending with all the world outside. But that lens of identity is partially how you're able to view the world, but also how the world is viewing you. So I, you know, I think in this book, there's going to be interesting entry points for readers from many, many backgrounds. And I love that because it's just, that was one of my places where I was like, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, also gross. Also <laughs> gross. Maybe I'll go get the chunky monkey. But there are many moments like that. When you began to write this book and you started having the idea for this book, you know, clearly the subcontinent, or I don't even want to call it a subcontinent. South Asia is a treasure trove of storytelling. So many wonderful legends and folk tales that form a, an amazing narrative tradition to draw upon for this book. Were you attracted by some of the idea of the stories that you heard in your childhood that you then attend, you know, just spun off into this book, or was it just general themes that you that you brought into it? No, it was pretty. It, it, I guess it was pretty specific because um, this book is really inspired by the Hamza Nama or the uh, the Epic of Amir Hamza, as we sometimes call it in mm -hmm. India. And that is, I'm going to kind of compare it. This is a very loose comparison, but like the Islamic Odyssey. Okay, it's an oral tale that began essentially in Persia, and it traveled across over hundreds of years across, you know, the Islamic world from Persia across the you know, the Arabian subcontinent and, you know, touching um, points in like North Africa. And it eventually got to India. It traveled beyond India into, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia. But in India, it really found a home in the Mughal courts. And one emperor just loved hearing these stories. And, you know, the emperors at the time had these grand, beautiful sort of state rooms that were kind of partially open air. And the Dastan, the storyteller, would come into this grand, you know, stateroom and there would be many, many listeners and the, the emperor would say, I want another story of Amir Hamza. Now, Amir Hamza is this great uh, Islamic warrior and he went on incredible adventures and the Mughals actually wrote down the stories and they were thousands of pages long. They even had commissioned beautiful paintings to go with it. Most of the paintings are lost. Those original volumes that were handwritten lost but we were able to maintain and capture some of it partially through the oral tradition and because then other people started writing it down. And that oral tradition, you know, went from the Mughal court beyond that into the camp towns and into the countryside and eventually down through generations to my great grandmother who would tell my mom some of these bedtime stories of this great warrior and, you know, battling mischievous jinn and 
you know, mango fairies and the sleep fairy and all these other um, characters and, and creatures. And some of those stories kind of passed along to me. And then I took what I knew and went back and researched the, you know, the adventures of Amir Hamza. And I found this little tale that I wanted to put my own twist on. And in that way, I feel like, you know, I, I tell, um, when I talk to young people about what the oral tradition is, I say like, imagine a gigantic game of telephone. So one person is saying the sentence to, to the next person and you carry it on. And imagine that game going on for hundreds of years across countries and continents. And one person starts with a story and each, each person who's listening adds a little bit of their own experience into that story, into their own culture, into that story. And then eventually, you know, when it gets to you, it might be very, very different from the very first tale, but then you get to put your own twist on it, your own spin on it. And so that's kind of what I did. And so I feel, I mean, not to be grandiose about it, but I feel like I get to be part of that cool oral tradition and now I've gotten to write it down and now other readers will be able to see, you know, some of these tales of Amir Hamza through my characters of Amir and Hamza. I, I love that. I'm imagining you now as a dust dung. Yeah. <laughs> In the backyard, telling your be own, fun. telling the kids of the neighborhood these stories, so that they can. Um, then put I, a spin I love on that. It. Would be fun. That would, I think that would be fun. Um, this book has really great back matter, including mentioning all the different types of creatures that are in Kaf, uh, and the back matter about Hamza Nama is fascinating because, again, talking about the geography of it, Persian. Uh, which is the language that we know from Iran, Arabic, uh, which goes uh, from, uh, is spoken across North Africa and all the way over to Iran and the language of Iraq. Uh, Georgian, which is a country that we understand to be in Europe. Javanese, Malay, that these are in the, the Western Pacific, uh, all the way, uh, you know, south of China. Again, India, Sudan, Sudanese, so sub-Saharan Africa, just the geographic scope of it, the narrative scope of it, and all of these people putting things into this story. You're part it's of so that cool, tradition. Right? I know. It's so amazing to think about that sweep of it. Uh, and then it's truly epic. And yet Amira and Hamza get started because Hamza cannot just leave off. Yes, because, <laughs> you know, going back to that curiosity, sometimes... You can be so curious that your curiosity can get the better of you. And Hamza, at this wonderful astronomy exhibit on ancient medieval uh, Islamic astronomy, there's a lot of cool instruments and gadgets. And he is just a gadget kid. And he sees this wondrous thing called the Box of the Moon, designed by Al-Biruni. And he is just drawn to it and does the thing that you're never, ever supposed to do at an exhibit which is he actually picks up this ancient artifact and gets into a bit of a squabble with his sister who absolutely knows the rules and is like, put that back, grabbing it from him. And then boom, it's dropped. Something is activated. When they, she races up to tell her parents about it, they find that every, everyone in the world has fainted, is like unconscious on the ground. Don't pick up artifacts. Don't touch it. Don't, don't yeah. touch it. Uh, but again, it's that moment of just like, 
yes, it's huge and epic and it's amazing and it's that liminal space of the sky and the moon is the cork and the box of the moon and it unleashes everything. And I'm thinking about Pandora's box and another narrative tradition, but they're just regular kids who all of a sudden are part of a huge epic, just like kids who are going to be reading this story are now themselves part of this huge epic narrative tradition. Sometimes we would think um, in another seven book long fantasy series, you know which one I'm talking about, <laughs> um, that would all be all about the chosen one and the burden of being chosen. But I think you have eschewed that idea so well with these kids. I'm going to read another passage. Maybe we weren't exactly the chosen ones. Maybe choosing us was all a mistake of bad eyesight. Maybe I am an ordinary kid without magical powers who got lucky fighting a demon. Or maybe it wasn't luck at all. Who knows? <laughs> I just love these characters and I, I thank you so much for joining us today to share with us some insight into Amira and Hamza and the war to save the world. Thanks so much for having me and happy reading everybody. Gentle listeners throughout the universe, uh, we're so pleased to have Samira with us today and to have Amira and Hamza, The War to Save the Worlds, on bookshelves everywhere. As a special treat, we're pleased to share with you a sample of the audiobook read by Samila Nankani. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next time. I don't believe in wishes. Not anymore. Wishes are for little kids and old-timey cartoon princesses and people who think a star in the night sky is actually a twinkly enchanted jewel and not just a hot glowing ball of gas. I wasn't always like this. I used to make wishes when I blew out my birthday candles and maybe I still throw pennies into fountains, but I swear. It's only for very special occasions. And if I ever see an actual shooting star and not a bright speck of light that turns out to be an airplane in Chicago's night sky, I might make a wish on it because, hello, seeing a shooting star in a city full of light pollution would basically be a miracle. But otherwise, I'm declaring that in this, my 12th year of being alive, I am giving up on hoping and dreaming too hard for impossible things. Officially, precisely, this new life plan began yesterday afternoon at 3 p.m. when I failed my karate test again. This is the slow-motion rewind that's been looping through my brain every minute since then. I tighten my yellow belt before stepping onto the mat a mustache of salty sweat paints my upper lip. Sensei approaches, towering above me, eyebrows furrowed. Focus, Amira. You got this. Third time's the charm. I cringe. I've been trying to forget my other two failures to advance to orange belt. Ignoring my wobbly knees, I walk to the center of the mat and come eye to eye with my opponent. Or rather eye to hairline, since I'm almost a full head taller than the little nine-year-old in front of me. 
Her hair is pulled back into a tight ponytail wrapped with a pink glittery bow. I got this. I smile. She scowls back. I swear she almost snarls. It's the longest three minutes of my life. You hesitate, Amira. You make it too easy for your opponents to block you. Sensei told me after my humiliating defeat. Attack. Imagine yourself defeating them. But how? How can I imagine something I can't do? I asked. Sensei gave me one of his enigmatic smiles. Stop being scared of your own power. You have the tools, but you need to believe here and here. He pointed to his chest, then tapped his head. It's the same old out-of-tune song every adult sings. Believe in yourself. Fine, okay, I do. My life is a believa palooza. So why isn't it enough? <laughs>